Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 391, recorded on Sunday, the 10th of July, 2022. Glad to be off the road again. I'm Bill. Musically speaking, I'm Moss. In the middle of Swassville, I'm Joe. Feeling like I'm losing my head, I'm Norbert. First up in the news, Mint is coming. Leonard Pottering has left the building. Vim speaks a new language. Web apps come to GNOME 43. Fedora lets Flatpak out of jail and wants to talk. GDK5 is dropping the X. Linux gets Siri, or Cortana, or Corolla. In security and privacy, CISA sounds the alarm and Firefox strips. Then in our wanderings, Bill repaves his omen, Moss goes back to school, Joe is still in 3D. And Norbert is typing. Not prepared. <laughs> in, um, our section, in our innard section, we will be discussing the different services that we pay for on a monthly basis or a continuous basis. And finally, a feedback and a couple of suggestions. First up, the news, Linux Mint news. This is from the Linux Mint blog. System D OOM will not be added to Mint 21 at the present time. Home directory encryption continues to be available in the installer. The decision was made to keep OS Prober enabled by default to guarantee proper dual boot detection out of the box. WebP support was added to XViewer and thumbnailers. Blue Man 2.3 is in and replaces Blueberry, which might be helpful because Blueberry's terrible. In rsync mode, Time Shift now calculates the required space for the next snapshot and skips it if performing that snapshot leads to less than one gigabyte of free space on the disk. We talked about the updates to Mint Update last episode, and in later news, all ISOs of the Mint beta have to date been faulty and are rejected. Work continues I'm excited to see that uh, bit about uh, blueberry being gone and hopefully blue man 2.3 is an improvement I I I know only anecdotally that Bluetooth tends to be a bit of a hit-or-miss situation on Linux period but it seems like we're getting a little bit of progress with these things. I've I've never really had much trouble, but I don't I don't use a lot of Bluetooth on the desktop much. See, when you first connect something using Bluetooth, it works just fine. But most things have a sleep mode or something like that, and whenever it goes to sleep and then comes back is when most people experience the problems. Yeah. Okay, Norbert. Leonard Puttering, creator of Systemd and Pulse Audio, has left Red Hat and joined Microsoft. This is from 9to5Linux. And Leonard Puttering is a German software engineer who has, uh, I think, he's, at this point, he's one of the most well-known uh, contributors to Linux. He, has, uh, he is most well-known for creating Systemd and Pulse Audio. And in a June, 5, in a June 5th surprise announcement, Leonard Puttering has left Red Hat following 
a decade and a half there, and uh, and it turns out he has joined Microsoft and is con but he is continuing his work on System D, while some may not always align with his view with his views or approaches to handling some things. Okay, I think this is better done with with one's own words. So I'm not sure if there's a lot more to this to this news at this point. Most uh, sources that I've heard mention this, uh, they mostly just share their own opinions. And uh, well, System D is one of the most uh, widely used and also one of the most controversial uh, uh, pieces of software that Linux systems use. But when when I say most controversial, I I think it's just a mi uh, focal minority criticizing it. Mostly... He's definitely going to continue work on System D in spite of this career change. Um, in fact, I think there's been a commit by him since then so i'm not well, sure if it's if it's a storm in the teacup it, it it's strange but it's not as strange nowadays as it would have been five years ago or so to yeah, see something like with this. the with the economy the way that it is right now i mean you really have to go where the money is so i'm not going to be mad at anybody that does something that they find is best for themselves or their family yeah and to be well, fair, he's going to continue working on Avahi and and Pulse Audio, although that's being phased out. Um, it, Microsoft just needed someone that that knew the system, and Leonard has proven over the years he knows it as well as anybody. And over the years, he's taken more flack from the Linux community than anybody, and that is probably not fair to him. And to be fair, Microsoft is. Cont uh, contributing to Linux quite a lot nowadays, so They're if he can continue, so if he can continue uh, contributing to System D, or even leading, is he still the lead developer of System D? If if he can continue doing that pretty much uninterrupted, I'm not sure if this uh, will be of any negative uh, impact on on Linux. Well, like the article said, Microsoft currently shows 663 job postings open mentioning Linux, so they are looking to work more in Linux. Yeah, that's interesting. They probably have more Linux jobs open than Red Hat does. I have no data to back that up, but it's interesting. Ready to move on? Vim 9.0 drops bombshell with new scripting language. This is from Make Use Of. While Vim already had a scripting language, Vim 9 script makes some changes to how comments, functions, and variable assignments work. While most users will want to wait until their distributions package manager updates Vim, uh, Unix slash Linux users eager to try the new version, can download the source code from the download page and compile it. Bram Moulinar, I apologize, said that Vim 9 script 
programs had their execution speeds boosted up to 100 times over the older scripting language. This is achieved by compiling commands for efficient execution. Anyone here use Vim? Um, no, but I, there's still a lot of Vim power users out there. Yeah. It was one thing that Vim, Vim VI, Emacs, whatever. Uh, Vim is powerful with that scripting because Vim has a. Gosh. Yeah, well, once you really learn Vim, um, I mean, I've seen people use it and just. It's absolutely insane how quickly they can get through a file and make specific changes and just do whatever they want in Vim. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, it's not for me. But how I many times have you gone into awesome. the into the Etsy folder and you've uh, you've done some pretty complicated um, changes to a config file somewhere, and then you go to save it and you only then realize that you did not open that file as root, and so everything you just did on Nano is for nothing. Well, Vim's got a workaround for that. Where you can... always do sudo nano, but nano yeah. has a, uh, but nano... it happens though. You forget the sudo and and then with something like nano, to the best of my knowledge, I'm sure there's workarounds out there. But Vim's got a a way to append a certain uh, command, and then you can you can save your work right there from the interface that you're already on. Doesn't nano also which... give you a warning when you're not as root when you should be? I mean, yeah. Let if me you're, let, let me try that. Only when you go to save it, it'll say, it'll say read only at the no, top. No, uh, I just opened FFS tab without root, and by default there's a bright red warning at the bottom which says it's unwritable. So I'm not, not sure. I'm not sure if every edition. distro does that. I know it uh, didn't Fedora does. To. Fedora does at least. Yeah, I think that's got to be turned on in the config or something i don't think arch does that in arch you'll you'll get a thing at the top saying read only but in spite of that i know i've done it and and i've heard other people lament that they've done it yeah it happens so that's that's the one useful thing them has but that being said i still tend to use nano more often just because it's so much simpler yeah I've been getting by with Nano, but recently I tried something else, and I may be switching to it, which is not Vim. No Remax. Joe? More on that later on. Ah. Okay. Moving on, then. GNOME 43 adds support for web apps and flat packs. We're still two and a half months away from the final GNOME 43 release, but we wanted to share some exciting new features you'll be enjoying this fall, as well as... Some of the improvements implemented so far. First of all, GNOME Software 43 is getting support for web apps with a focus on PWAs. That's progressive web apps. In addition to supporting web apps, GNOME 43 also brings improved support for Flatpak apps. As the graphical package manager and app store are now capable of displaying file system permissions requested by Flatpak apps. Moreover, GNOME Software 43 features new touch gestures for swiping back in the shell. A new Other Apps by Author section on the App Details page. A new Available for Distro section on the Overview page. 
improved caching of download metadata notifications and mouse navigation of app screenshots. Second of all, GNOME Settings, also known as GNOME Control Center 43, is getting a new device security section in the privacy settings that will display the security status of your hardware generated by the FWUPD project and hardware configuration changes, such as HSI security level and secure boot status. Users will be able to choose between the three pre-configured security levels for their hardware, like minimum, basic, or extended protection. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. Always good to have more support for web apps and flat packs. And I do like that they are providing the permissions when you go look at the application instead of when you're trying to install the application. I'm really okay. I'm sorry. Web apps are something that when I switched to Linux, I was using Chromium and I could just add any web website to the app grid and it will open as a web app. And since I switched to Firefox, progressive web apps are the single most missed feature. At least, I mean, by me, uh, by me. So I'm not sure if this, well, you, you will be able to do this via any browser or it will be like uh, something that you do with the Epiphany, the GNOME web browser. I I don't remember what the um, application is, but a couple of releases back, Mint came out with an application to basically turn anything into a web app, any web page. And you could do it using, you had to go in and manually change it because it starts out as Firefox, but you can go in and switch it so that it will do Chrome instead. Maybe. Lately, I've just transitioned to using everything in a browser, it's, like in one it, single Firefox window because it just, I assume it's more, uh, uh, it's uh, less. Uh, yeah, it looks it's, like it's, it, it's actually less of your resources. web apps. It's called web apps. Run yeah. websites as if they were apps. So lately I even use Microsoft Teams and Fire, uh, Discord and even Zoom, everything in a browser tab. I have them pinned so they don't take up as much space. I think it's convenient. Yep, I use a lot of pinning and I use a lot of one tab. Okay, GTK5 might drop X11 support, says Gnome Dev from the register. Emmanuel Bassi opened a discussion last week on the Gnome Project's GitLab instance that asked whether the developers could drop X11 support in the next release of GTK. We have a link in the show notes. That's really all that was in the article. Yeah, X11, as much as I like using it because of, you know, everything that you can do with it, it really is dead. I mean, not a whole lot of updating or new features. But then again, I don't know if Wayland is completely there yet. Not so. yet, but you should keep in mind that GTK4 is just now starting to get adopted. And GTK3 came out, I think, almost 10 years ago. So I assume there will be an, uh, at least another well, five years before we get GTK5, before we see any of GTK5. And so that gives another five years, at least, I think, maybe more, for Wayland to improve. So I'm yeah, personally all, all for this. Yeah, they've been trying to push out this. Wayland now for more than a decade. So 
Yes, but in the last two years, I would say we had more uh, results or more advancements on that uh, towards that than in the previous 10 years. So I'm pretty optimistic. I'm, I've been using mainly Wayland since I switched to Linux. Uh, and even I, when I first time I saw in the login manager, when it says Nomon Xorg, I didn't know what it was. And I read it as Nomon Zorg. Like it, it was some sort of a villain's name from a sci-fi Zorg. So anyway, um, well, then I, just, then I wanted to share my screen on Discord and it didn't work. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I just moved, gave up on using Discord as an app and moved it to using it in a browser because it seems to be a better experience in some cases. But And I'm obviously still using Xorg, X, uh, XFC on my NVIDIA desktop, but I did get Sway working and Gnome Wayland working as well and didn't have that many issues, so I'm pretty optimistic. We need to also rely on NVIDIA creating a driver that better supports Wayland altogether. But I think in five years, we will most likely be there but, but it, at, at the point where it's perfectly usable on any device. So I'm not really worried about this. If they, if they did, do choose to drop X11 support, that's, uh, that's going to further drive it and adoption. Okay. You're up next, Norbert. Fedora proposing to allow unrestricted access to FlatHub. This is from Foronix. To this point, Fedora out of the box has been restricted to filter to a filtered subset of FlatHub packages, uh, which is what uh, when you see uh, the Fedora remote, which is called uh, just Fedora, that's what this is. However, Legal has now cleared Fedora 37 for allowing unfiltered slash unrestricted access to FlatHub, allowing a far greater section selection of flatpacks to become available on Fedora. There is some possible opposition to this change in its current form though, because flatpacks have a higher priority over RPMs within GNOME software. So this change may run into some problems unless GNOME software is altered in its behavior around flatpacks versus Fedora RPMs. There is also some concern over some flat some FlatHub packages not being built from trusted, high-quality third-party sources. So the first thing that comes to my mind is what uh, Elementary OS did with their uh, with them having their own remote that only has uh, verified packages that uh, are that met a certain criteria that they have established for their uh, system. But as far as I know. Uh, as far as I think I know, Fedora having uh, only certain flat packs by default is mainly due to legal reasons, mainly like libraries uh, that, for example, uh, playing media relies on that uh, Red Hat uh, had uh, didn't have all the rights to include and ship in Fedora so far. But this is the same with uh, this is the same reason why RPM Fusion exists and. And uh, I'm may I'm not sure. I mean, if they can do this with FlatHub, that's uh, that's great because I would argue that nowadays, if you have FlatHub, you don't have much of a need for RPM Fusion, at least as an average user. If you are using uh, the 
RPM of Firefox, you might uh, benefit from adding RPM Fusion. But if you, for example, switch to using the f the Flatpak of Firefox, maybe I f uh, maybe this is a if it's more uh, reachable for Fedora to do than having RPM Fusion integrated. I think they should uh, absolutely go for this. And uh, GNOME software preferring Flatpaks over RPMs that might also not be that much big of a program, at least in my experience, Flatpaks work more or less flawlessly on Fedora nowadays. Yeah, I think from an average just end user perspective, there's really no difference between, you know, you open up GNOME software and you look for your package and then you and you install it. I don't I don't know how many people are using Linux that are not at least somewhat aware of these things, but for conversation's sake, imagine that, that there is a subset of people like that, you know, it, from their point of view, what difference does it make if it's a flat pack or an RPM? But I would um, assume that more, uh, there are more people who know what the majority of Fedora users at least must know what this is. I, I would think so too, but I think flat packs are so good at this point like you said they're they they're just fine they work pretty much i mean the only downside to them is maybe a slightly larger download size because it's coming with some dependency type stuff you know yes but, but they also that, they also share a lot of dependencies so the more flat yeah. you have the smaller they the downloads become uh yeah. i i also have no I also don't have many complaints about Flatpak, at least on GNOME, they were great. On Sway, uh, which is an, a WR Roots, which is a WR Roots based window manager, uh, I, I don't currently use them because I found that uh, the integration is not as seamless and I had some problems with, uh, for example, Flatpaks not being able to launch and uh, rendering issues. I will, but I still plan to going back to them on my laptop because they are just, I mean, most of the stuff that I was using as a flat pack, which is basically Discord, uh, Teams, Slack, Zoom, I just use in a browser now. So I'm not sure if I even need uh, those flat packs on my laptop. I obviously use flat packs on my desktop because they are just, I still use flat packs on my desktop because they're just great and convenient. But uh, it also depends on what desktop environment you're in. Because Fedora is using GNOME by default, I think they just should. I don't think there should be any problem. I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm choosing them over AUR packages on Arch. Um, if there's if there's something out there I need that, you know, would be... Normally would have been an AUR download, compile and install. Yeah. The flat pack works just as well, and it's just as up-to-date, and so... Yeah, but are you installing from the command line, or are you using the installer, the... Flat hub or well, the, the GUI for that. On one laptop that's running XFCE, I'll use the uh, terminal, but the other one uh, is running uh, Plasma, so I use Discover. It's the only thing. Discover is just set up on Arch to keep flat packs up to date and search for and install flat packs, and then the stuff that comes from the KDE store that 
or plugins and things for the yeah. plasma desktop. You know, that's that's what I use Discover for. It's interesting because when yeah, you I, I always get my files from Plathub and then I use the terminal to install them. It's just as I mean it's You go to Flathub to do window shopping, basically. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. you download them by terminal. Yeah. Because a simple once you've got it, it's just flat hub update and which I've got scripted well, away. Anyway. It is a little confusing because you go to flat hub and it says install and all it really does is download. It, yeah. You have to then go somewhere else to install it. And I just think it's easier to use terminal. I just kind of consider it like a, yeah, I know what you're saying. At first I thought it might've been more like that open SUSE thing where it actually has, um, binary compatibility right there from the website and you can install packages. I don't know if OpenSUSE still does that or not. They used to, but, uh, I think, I, I think I just, it's a matter of just your interpretation. I suppose people probably do go on there and expect that button to just install the package. They pro- maybe they should. OpenSUSE has these, uh, reference files that you can download that will add repositories. Are you referring to those? I tried those and no, they... you could actually you could actually go to their package manager website and literally hit an install button and it would install onto your system. It would it executed binaries. Okay, to, so uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, the one manager. the one click install. I've tried yeah. those. They are they're the same thing that I mentioned because if you want to download something that that's not in the repos, that basically I as far as I know just adds the repo and then installs it. It it sometimes it's it hit or miss because for me when I wanted to install something it tried to add a bunch of repositories that are not needed. I asked it about it on the OpenSUSE Telegram. They did say that they may be thinking about deprecating this feature because it's not very reliable. At least yeah. that's that was my takeaway from it. But it's still I hadn't feature. used it in years. But in, in Fedora's case, FlatHub really. I mean, there's always been a, a, a solution, but FlatHub is kind of the answer to all, you know, the legality issues with, with Fedora being a U.S.-based distribution, and they have to be a little bit more careful about the type of multimedia stuff that they put into it, and FlatHub just kind of, I mean, they made it easy to get RPM Fusion, I suppose, but FlatHub just makes it brainless, just get your stuff from there and not even but worry about it. I. Yes, but it's still a case of shipping a, a repository that has those libraries. So I, I don't really, I'm not sure if I understand how different uh, including FlatHub is from including RPM Fusion. Because you are still including a repo that has those libraries. I think I'd just go to FlatHub and read the instructions. But, yep. All right, moving on. Okay. Fedora announces Corolla, a smart assistant for Linux. From Fedora Magazine, Fedora is getting a new personal voice assistant, PVA. Marius Schwartz writes, The first thing people often ask is, why did you name it Corolla? This is a common misconception. Corolla is not the project name. It's the keyword the PVA reacts to by default. It is similar to Alexa or OK Google, for those who are familiar with those products. You can configure this keyword. You can also configure other things such as your location, which applications to use by default when opening media files, what card DAV server to use when looking up contact information, etc. These settings can be personalized for each user. 
Some of them can even be changed by voice commands, such as the name, the default TTS engine, and the default apps. So then what in 20... So then what is the name of the project? In 2021, I read an article about the speech-to-text system VOSC and started to play a bit with it. The installation was easy, but there was no use case except for writing what one said down to the screen. A few hours and a hundred lines of Java code later, I could give my simple PC I could give my PC simple commands. After a few more days of work, it was capable of executing more complex commands. Today, you can tell him, her, it to start apps, redirect audio streams, control audio and video playback, call someone, handle incoming calls, and more. If you have a smart home, which I haven't, you can even switch on the light in the kitchen. But back to why I chose Corolla. It was the most recognizable by the STT system I was using at the time. Note, this PVA has no English translations yet because it was developed in German. I will use rough translations here, which should work once someone helps with translating the config. There are videos out about Corolla which show these kind of interactions in reality. For now, because a few dependencies are unavailable from Fedora Linux's default repositories, you will need to install the system manually. But don't be afraid. It is all described in the read.me and is pretty simple. And I don't know the answer to that question. I was just reading the article. <laughs> Do you? Nein. Norbert? Nein. Ich, ich weiß es nicht. Nein. Uh, <laughs> nine, ten, eleven, Let's 12, call uh, it Fedora Voice Assistant. Well, I, I really, I was, there is actually one, uh, science fiction TV show I, I'm having where they actually named an AI Cortana. I'm going, Windows much? Yeah. No, uh, no, Cortana is the, is a, an AI in the Halo universe. And Halo mm -hmm. is a game developed by Microsoft. So Microsoft named their, their assistance. Or did I not get the sarcasm? Well... Whether Cortana was named after Halo or Halo was named after Cortana is, is still Windows. Ooh, yeah, but what Halo... came first, the Microsoft or the... Well, that's a stupid question. The Microsoft or the Microsoft. They just have... named the voice assistant after the voice assistants inside their game. I don't get it, though. What's wrong with the name Corolla? Toyota. Oh, okay. So the implication being they'll get sued... Because they name a soft piece of software the same thing as a car. Is it Corolla or it's, is it Carola? That, no, that's oh Corolla. The C O R. That's Corolla in Corolla. German. But in, in Toyota, it's Corolla is a C O R R O L A. Yeah. Well, there you go. C O R O L L A. Yeah. It shouldn't be a problem. I'm just going. Okay, so they picked a name. Uh, okay. They picked mm -hmm. a name that they uh, seem to encourage people uh, to change. To whatever they want, which is, well, I think it's a nicer approach. But then I know that there has been and still is uh, a problem around Alexa. Oh, uh, so I shouldn't say that out loud. Yeah. Oh, no, so, big, no, no. Sorry. A, so, so a, as another announcer calls it, Lady Tube. Okay. Or so, Lady Cylinder. So take two. So I know there's a <laughs> there's a controversy around uh, Amazon's voice assistant's uh, default name. I don't think default name yeah because people who have that name uh, have a harder time 
in their everyday life because of that. So at least Cortana is a from a fictional universe and it's not, as far as I know, it's not a common name. There might be people out there named Cortana, I'm which sure I also shouldn't say out loud, but I'm not sure how many Linux users would have Cortana set up. Um, and how many Windows users actually have Cortana set up? It's a good question. It's like the first thing you turn off, isn't it, when you're doing the install? (laughs) You don't even let it turn off. Considering if you're at all interested in security, that's the first thing you turn off. Uh, Or just irritated by the sound of the condescending voice. Who wants to read the security and privacy? That means we're done with the news. CISA sound alarm about high severity bug in all Linux distros. A high severity Linux vulnerability capable of granting abusers root access to target endpoints is being exploited in the wild, researchers have warned. The flaw is found in Polkit's PC exec component, which can be found in pretty much all major Linux distributions. Tracked as CVE 2021-4034, the flaw is dubbed PwnKit and is described as a memory corruption bug. It allows threat actors full root privileges on Linux systems with default setups. What's more, three actors can exploit the bug without leaving a trace on the compromised endpoint. The current version of PKExec doesn't handle the calling parameters count correctly and ends trying to execute environment variables as commands. The NIST security advisory reads. An attacker can leverage this by crafting environment variables in such a way it'll include PKExec to execute arbitrary code. When successfully executed, the attack can cause a local privilege escalation given unprivileged users administrative rights on the target machine. Even though security researchers are warning that the flaw is being abused in the wild, they did not say who the threat actors are or who they are using the flaws against. Yes, I skipped a bunch of it. It was getting long. And I felt (laughs) like uh, we had covered the important parts for the parts that I had read. What it was. Well, I figured we might have a short show, so we might want a longer uh, security. Yeah. No, I can always read the rest of it. Nah, move on. TLDR. The rest of it's in the show notes. All right, then. A new Firefox privacy feature strips URLs of tracking parameters from bleeping computers. Mozilla Firefox 102 was released today with a new privacy feature that strips parameters from URLs that are used to track you around the web. Numerous companies, including Facebook, Marketo, Olytics, and HubSpot, utilize custom URL query parameters to track clicks on links. With the release of Firefox 102, Mozilla has added the new query parameter stripping feature that automatically strips various query parameters used for tracking from URLs when you open them, whether that be by clicking on a link or simply pasting the URL into the address bar. Once enabled, Microsoft will now strip the following tracking parameters from URLs when you click on links or paste a URL into the address bar. 
And those are in the show notes. They're fun uh, to read. Olytics, Oli underline Ank underline ID equals get stripped. Oli underline Anon underline ID equals get stripped, et cetera, et cetera. You've got Drip, yeah. Vero, HubSpot, Marquito, and Facebook. Moss has Microsoft on the brain, but he meant Mozilla. What did I say? Microsoft Firefox? You, no, you said once enabled, Microsoft will. Oh, my. Oh. I'm sorry. Um, bravo for th this is the stuff we want Mozilla doing right here. This is this is the stuff we want our browser doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'm sorry. I was sponsored by Microsoft to say that. I'm sure. It'll be all right. But yeah, that this this is the kind of thing we want them doing because um, there's enough people out there that are sneaking things in in ways that people are not fully aware, fully you know, fully accustomed to thinking about. And this is one of those things. So it's good to have. I'm a sure they'll add more right. as they find ones. Yeah, I I know that. Um we've talked about this on previous shows or maybe some other shows have also talked about this too because they've been planning this for a while and i'm glad it's finally been implemented the stripping out of the trackable information yeah okay anything else nope that's all we got in security all right on to the bi-weekly wanderings and bill you're up first. Well, this week I decided to nuke and pave my HP Omen laptop. I've actually got two HP laptops. They're both running Arch. Um, although the one, the more powerful one that's upstairs in the living room, that's actually dual booting um, Windows 11 with uh, Arch Linux. And... Uh, that was Mint Arch, right? <laughs> Well, our, I needed Arch at one time. There's things I still like about Arch, but when I need, when it's time to hey, sit Bill, down and do, do you run Arch? I do. Okay. I think I might have mentioned that. Okay, just checking. But I, well, I thought I had to, otherwise I'd, I'd be fined by the whatever open source torches police. and pitfalls yeah, on be the way. Me. Um. Okay, so I, I made this decision because that machine had a one terabyte NVMe Samsung 980 Pro. That's what's got the operating systems on it. And then I also stuck a big old two terabyte Samsung 960 Evo just for storage. Now, those are expensive hard drives, and I wasn't even coming close to using all that space. Um the reason I opted for that in the beginning was because I was going to do some work with virtual machines. And then once I got started doing podcasting, my time for that just went out the window. Um, like I said, these are expensive storage devices, so not making use of them was bothering me a bit. Now, the oldest of my kids still living with me, uh, he's got this really beastly Acer gaming laptop, and that's got provisions on the motherboard for two NVMe drives as well as an SSD slot. And he was constantly running into trouble where he had to 
delete games to make space because he had the, I think it's like a 128 gig NVMe, but the, then he had a one terabyte Toshiba spinning rust drive on it. And I didn't know it was a spinning rust until I opened it up. I just knew it was one terabyte. And so I thought, well, I, I was wanting to replace a screen on that Omen anyway. So I went ahead and swapped those out and put that two terabyte into his. But then I, then I was left with a problem because I didn't want to put the one terabyte spinning rust back into mine. So I did some swapping around with the production machine down here. It took the, I had a 500 gigabyte um, 980 Evo in there that I was using just to store stuff on it. And so I just, I switched that out, put a two terabyte uh, Seagate Fire Cuda into that. And the only thing that's doing is just storage. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really need to be fast. Yeah. The Fire Cuda is a spinning disc as well. It just it has is. a section uh, for caching that is right. an SSD. For those that don't know, yeah, I, I like the Fire Cuda. It's a nice balance between spinning disc and SSD if you want larger amounts of storage. And that's it. it I had it sitting around doing not much of anything, and it wasn't a cheap hard drive. Um, I'm not sure how useful the flash storage is on it. How how well it gets utilized as a as a regular storage device if it was being used as a boot device it might come in more handy but still it's a two terabyte drive so i've got i've got more storage space while be it slightly smaller or slightly slower down here it doesn't really matter it's just going to be where the the media files reside for our shows and things like that so uh, he's happy. He's actually able to keep his games on his machine now and not have to erase them. And I'm happy that it's getting some use because, like I said, those those two terabyte Samsung SSDs are darn near three hundred dollars. Uh, it was uneventful that whole process, uh, though it did require me to nuke and pave my system because I I had a kind of a complicated ButterFS uh, Lux encryption thing going on. And you remove a hard drive from that whole layout and it's just easier to start from scratch. But I'd been wanting to, I'd been wanting to do that anyway. All right. So about a year ago, I ordered a replacement 1080p screen. I don't know if you've, people might've heard me, lament about that 4k screen that it had on there it's a 15 inch laptop that came with a 4k screen and that's about as useful as a screen door on a submarine it's great for gaming you do get you do get quite a bit more resolution when you're playing your games but when you're doing desktop stuff it's just it's a it's a less than perfect experience because you end up having to zoom it to the point where you might as well just had 1080p or 720p to begin with and you don't get the same for whatever reason you don't get the same clarity of picture as you would if you had just a native 1080p or at least that was my experience um when i originally ordered that screen i tried to swap it out only to find out that there 
was a slight difference between the plug on the wire and so I had to order a new wire for it but replacing that was going to require me uh, tearing it apart a little bit more because the other the other end of that wire it's like it's kind of a Y type thing because it's partially uh, one of the uh, antennas that kind of wraps around the inside of the screen bezel and then the other end goes into the motherboard so I had to order one of those now those those parts are all actually replacements to my daughter's Omen. She's got one that looks just like mine, but it's not quite as powerful, and it's got a 1080p screen. So I, having her computer there, I was able to just order exactly what I needed. Well, while I had it tore apart to uh, uh, swap those drives out, I went ahead and did the uh, m monitor too. And... Uh, Put it in, fired it up. I could not be happier. the The experience it it feels feels faster and it feels sharper because it's not being zoomed. Um, it's just using the full native resolution. So, if one of your laptops goes out, is that a bad omen? Ha ha ha! Good one. Yeah, I've got one. The daughter has one. My oldest boy that's still living here has got one of those Acer gaming. I bought all these at pawn shop. These are all $1,500. Mine's like a $2,000 Omen. And I, I don't think I've spent more than $300 for a laptop because these, these people don't know what they got. Uh, then the other boy, he's got one of those Asus Republic of Gamer laptops. These are all... Uh, substantially powerful machines but uh, you, you buy them used and you get one heck of a discount and they were in perfectly good shape uh, so I was I was actually looking forward to doing a fresh install and rid the system of cruft that uh, a user like me builds up after a while you know because you try you hear about projects and you try them out and you in install them and they 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 come with all the config files and then you do things with the files to try different things and then you end up either moving on from it or just getting rid of it and then these files are left behind um in in the arch world you've kind of got this you've got this culture that is against nu nuking and paving but i i don't think there's ever going to be a time where sometimes you're just going to benefit by erasing it and starting it from scratch with a nice clean uh, system that's got all of the modern because uh, that's the other thing a lot of, with arch it doesn't update the config files unless you do it yourself unless you merge those configs yourself which a lot of people don't do and i haven't always done it so you as they add different functionality you might not always have it until you do a new compave um now, I've been happy with Arch, but I really, my time's been limited lately. So this time I went with Endeavor OS. I've used it before in virtual machines, and I had it installed on a thumb drive um, that I was using, and I was happy with it that way, but I, I hadn't tried the uh, KDE version of it. And so I was kind of interested in having a nice, easy-to-install Arch base 
with uh, all of the, the benefits of Arch and very little of the work. Um, it, it is Arch. Endeavor is Arch, as we, as we know full well. But it just comes with a few GUI tools to do certain tasks that Arch users have been doing in the command line or terminal for since the beginning. And it makes it a little bit easier. Um, it was it was helpful to have these things to get everything up to date and running prior to getting the scripts that I normally use off of my GitHub page. Um, now Endeavor comes with uh, these scripts that run and check for updates regularly and sends a generic notification that you can't really do anything with. It's just a notification saying that there's updates. And that was that was something I got rid of because it, it feels a little silly having an update notification for an art system because there's literally an update every time you look. Because with Arch or anything based on Arch, based directly on Arch, you're going to have updates as the individual commits are sent upstream. So every time, basically, if you if you run an update six times a day, you'll get at least one package each time. So I got rid of that. Um, I'm, I can't say that I'm ready to give up the Arch experience forever, but for now, I'm happy happy with the Endeavor uh, with the Endeavor experience because it it really makes makes it easy just to get it up and running. Uh, the other thing I liked was that they do a ButterFS install the right way. They actually set up, if you choose ButterFS, it sets up the uh, sub-volumes for, for all the recommended uh, places that you, that you would normally want to do that and then mounts them correctly in the uh, FS tab. Uh, file there so that's that's one good option with uh with regards to butterfs and arch um but that's about all i've got what you got moss well i discovered that raspberry pis are not worth their weight in gold unlike what some people tell me my Pi 3B Plus lists on eBay for around $60, although the only exact match I see right now with the Pi Moroni case is $120 plus shipping. Hold on, hold I'm on, hold on. You, what? You're telling me your $35 3B Plus is only selling for $60 on eBay? Well, and with the Pi Moroni case, it's only $120. That's not gold. That's maybe a good grade of silver. Okay, I'm, I'm just checking. <laughs> I'm trying to see what else I can do with my Pi 4. Actually, I went looking around and I can't find the Pi 4, but I know it's here. Uh, both Pis are just sitting around. I looked at maybe self-hosting Bitwarden, but it looked like a lot of work just to save 10 bucks a year. I got signed up for teaching this fall and I got all my online courses done. I just hope I have the energy for teaching plus all my podcasts. It'd sure be nice to have a little bit of extra income coming in. Distro Hoppers is set for July 13th. That's this Wednesday if you're listening to the show live. This time in the early evening, best healing wishes to Tony Hughes, who's still down with COVID. Since Tony's down, we're doing it in the evening because that's more convenient to Josh and, and me and Dale. 
I sent Joe my extra Fire Tab 7 2019 model to see if he could get it to do anything. It's his now. I expect him to send my teeth and Lenovo power supply back soon. And speaking of teeth, I lost my current set of uppers, which is why I sound funnier this episode. Um, I'm lisping a lot more because I don't have the teeth to do my sibilance off of. Uh, that's it for me, unless someone wants to make more fun of me or something. Uh, Joe? Well, I did receive the fire tab from Moss, and I did get his teeth as well. And I will work on them when I have time. Or when I find my Dremel, whichever comes first. I mean, the other day when Moss told me he had lost his uppers and needed the other ones, um, I offered to work on them and get them done and sent out the next day. I spent the next like four hours trying to find my Dremel and could not find it. So I'm a little... You lied to me. You said eight hours. (laughs) Whatever. Four hours, eight hours. It was a long time that I looked for that Dremel and did not find it. But uh, I will find it, or when I get paid, I'll get another Dremel, and I'll get that done and get that sent back to Moss, along with um, another pair of headphones and that power supply for the Lenovo. Okay. Now, that Fire Tab was locked by Amazon because it took so long to deliver to Moss that they actually sent him another one. And it's still good hardware. And I, I really don't want it to go to waste. Uh, I understand why they locked it, but why throw it away when it's perfectly good brand new hardware? Um, I have found a set of instructions from XDA developers, and I think it'll do the trick in getting it to work. Um, there's even a hardware method in case you brick the thing while doing the software method. The device may not be able to log into Amazon ever due to the IMEI, but should do well with, uh, like, Google Apps. Yeah, I tried to return that one and the one they replaced it with and just order the the brand new model, which just came out the end of June. And uh, they told me to keep them both, and they'd just give me the refund, and I should wait another month or two to order the new one because uh, they start getting them back after they send them out, and they can ship me one for cheaper as a... Uh, re, re whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now remanufactured. There we go. One of the interesting things about the fix from XDA is that it requires you to use Linux. Most of the rooting methods that you'll see anywhere um, use Odin, which requires you to use Windows. So it's very refreshing to see a fix that requires Linux in order to work. Now, um, I've also been doing some 3D design and printing, trying to um, change out the casing for some really cheap Bluetooth headsets. I mean, like $3 a piece Bluetooth headsets. And uh, give them different batteries and different headphone cables. It's been a success so far, but I'm going for a very iterative approach to the improvements that I'm making. Um, I, I finished up the second model... Well, I finished up the 3D design and printing portion of the second model. I still got to add in the battery and the uh, the headphone wires. Um, the, like I said, the first one that I did and worked just fine. It was just way too chunky to be useful. And then now the second one, 
Um, it does look good. The first one took a whole lot of iterations of printing and testing to get everything sized right and fitting. Um, the second one I was able to measure and print one time, but I was having problems with my 3D printer. So, um, yeah, I was able to get a good print on that in the end. Um, now with the 3D printer, I have switched out the tubing and nozzle and the filament, and I'm still get I was still getting under extrusion. Now, from what I can see, there was an issue with the extruder gear, and I did order a new one from Amazon, uh, the one with dual gears. It's a $14 fix. Um, I was thinking that my bed was bowed and that was a $20 replacement, but I didn't order that one. And I'm glad I didn't because I found out that the problem was actually the X arm again, shifting positions. So hopefully now that's fixed. Um, I did get the new gear and that definitely fixed the under extrusion problem to the point where I thought I was getting some over extrusion but that was just because I had turned off cooling at one point to try and fix another issue. So once I turned cooling back on and got it printing with the new extruder gear, everything worked fine. And I verified looking at the old extruder gear that the tension arm on it was snapped. So that was indeed the problem. Um, now, uh, once it, it took a long time because I'm, I'm also trying out this thing called Gridfinity. And if you, if you do 3D printing and you have a lot of tools, check out Gridfinity. It's actually a cool project. Uh, but the thing is, is it's, it's very, a lot of the, especially the base is very flat to start out with. And um, you really have to have your, your printer dialed in to get that type of thing to print. And so I was able to get um, a three by four grid printed out and looking good at, you know, it took a couple of tries to actually get it level. But once I got that um, X arm tightened, so it wasn't wobbling, I was able to get a good flush level and get that to print. And um, I'm just starting on the Gridfinity stuff. I'm hoping it turns out well. Uh, now, for my next, because I got six of those um, really cheap Bluetooth adapters all at once in a lot for like three or four dollars each, and it, I'm the next one's going to be a lot more difficult to do than the last couple of iterations that I did because I was using the original casing, but the next one I'm going to remove the casing and I'm going to 3D print my own um, pushdowns for the buttons and have them seated in the casing that I'm going to make, which will allow for um, it to be overall smaller while still incorporating a larger battery and um, some type of modularity in connecting the uh, um, headphones. Now, I was also able to pick up a OnePlus phone from T-Mobile for basically free. Um, I traded in one of my old S3s, the one my son had been using, and got the OnePlus Nord N200. Um, that's something that T-Mobile is offering right now. You basically pay the taxes on it, and then 
they charge you each month the price of the phone, but then they also reimburse you the price of the phone, and they do that over 24 months. Um, it's definitely not the greatest device in the world, but at the cost, you really can't complain. It has a beautiful screen, and the images are very crisp. It also has a 90 hertz refresh rate. The camera, however, sucks. Um, I was thinking about getting a couple more of them and using multiple angles and OBS to make YouTube videos easier, but the camera is just plain bad. Some of it could be post-processing that could be fixed with proper software, but I don't know. It, it's really bad. I cannot express how terrible that camera looks. Um, I have put in the camera application that other people suggested, but it still really didn't help all that much. Um, I'm probably going to try out a different a couple of different things and see how it works with droid cam, but I, I don't have high hopes for the uh, camera quality improvements. Like I was saying, I, I traded my son's old S3 for the device. I, I think the cameras are about on par with each other, and while I do like the smaller form factor of the S3, um, it, it's getting a bit long in the tooth software-wise. I mean... You couldn't install most applications on it anymore. Even XDA had basically given up on updates for it. Um, the Nord is on Android 11, and I think um, the S3 ended on like 4.4 for stock. Um, and if I remember right, OnePlus is pretty good about keeping the updates coming. Um, if, and if nothing else, the Nord will make a good MP3 player once I get a good sized, uh, micro SD card in there. Um, I still want to order a case and screen protector for it, but I think it, it's also going to be a good device to use as like a VPN machine. As in, I connect it to a Wi-Fi network, then connect it to a VPN, and then connect it through USB to a laptop and share the network connection. I know this sounds frivolous, but it... It's actually useful when I need to step away and take my phone with me. It also keeps me from having to reset up the VPN every time I switch computers. So all I have to do is, you know, unplug it from one computer, plug it into the next computer and say, hey, use this as your internet connection. Um, now, it's also going to be my backup phone for if my main phone that I use for work every day um, something horrible happens to it and it becomes unusable. I can just pop out the SIM card from the one, pop it into the Nord and continue working. Um, now while playing around with setting up that Nord, I also pulled out the Pine phone and I reinstalled the Manjaro Plasma on it because I, I really liked that before. And I, I still love how you can adjust the scaling to make it look just like a desktop. And that I can install many full desktop applications onto it and just run them like I was sitting at a desktop. And yeah, I'm always going to say that, that that is my favorite feature of uh, the Manjaro Plasma on the Pine, uh, Pine phone. And that, that's pretty much all I've been up to, unless you guys got any is questions. Is that a regular Pine phone or a Pine phone Pro? Uh, that would be the original Pine phone. So not the pro. Any other questions? Awesome. Norbert, what you been up to? 
I finally got around doing something that I've been meaning to for a couple of months. Uh, the university semester has ended, so I took my old laptop and I set it as and I set it up as a file server, as a home server. For now, for only to be able to reach it from within the home network, and I uh, hooked one of my two terabytes as a uh, hard drives to it, and. Uh, I've been mostly uh, uh, connecting to it via SSH and mounting it uh, and mounting its hard drive via SSHFS, which is a bit slower than I hoped. So I will have to look into more efficient ways to do that. But yeah, uh, I had it up and running for a week, and it's running Debian stable, which uh, I still think is one of the best, if not the best choices uh, for such a purpose, when the only thing I really need to for that server to do is be running and be accessible anytime I want it to. And since on a server you don't, and in which case you don't really need feature updates for a system necessarily. I know that a lot of people like to use Debian on the desktop and I have done so in the past, but uh, after a while, even if it's been not too, too long since a release, I did, I have to say it does uh, kind of feel like the packages are a bit, a bit outdated. So, which is why I like Fedora on my desktop, but uh, yeah, I also set it up so that it is connected to VPN at all times, which uh, is something that uh, I find very convenient. I haven't managed to get uh, graphical apps to work by SSH though. So when I, whenever I want to, I know that it's possible because uh, in one of the university courses we used uh, SSH via to run a graphical app that was running on the server. But whenever yeah, I but. But I'm going to stop you right there because I know what your problem is. I do have Xorg um, installed on the server. Okay, okay. So you are doing X11 forwarding. And I am doing X11 forwarding. Maybe the problem is that I'm I'm running Sway on my client, but it shouldn't be an issue because when I was uh, running, uh, when I was doing X11 forwarding from the university server, I was running Gnome Wayland and both just use X Wayland, so it shouldn't be an issue. It's... Uh, it, the error message that I'm currently getting is that it's not able to use a display. I've tried setting it uh, to different values, the display vari variable. Um, I actually first run Xhost Plus. I on my client or the or the server. Um, I usually do it through Docker, and I usually have to run Xhost Plus on the client. I did so, that. Okay. Then I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something, uh, but that would be great because be before if I wanted to have a browser to go through a VPN and not my whole system, I would just fire up a VPN. But if, if if I could get this to work, I could just have a shortcut that would open up Firefox, a Firefox instance from the server via XLM forwarding. So I, would, uh, I wouldn't have to wait for, but I guess I would still have to wait for it to start up because like I said, SSH seems a bit slow for these purposes but I would have a more convenient way to do a just a single browser window go through a VPN. And yeah, while doing 
the com I have a separate shortcut. I did, I did set up passwordless SSH login. So I, and I set up a shortcut on my laptop that I, when I press it, it just opens up a terminal and automatically uh, logs into my server. So I have a separate, essentially it's like I have a separate hotkey for opening a terminal on my uh, client and on my server. And uh, when I mentioned that I've been trying out a, a different text editor, it's micro and I really like it because I have used both Nano and Vim previously. I like Nano, but the key bindings are a bit, I find them a bit odd. They're a bit different from anything else I've tried. And Micro has uh, very sensible key bindings, I, I should say. And Micro has very sensible key bindings. For example, you can just uh, cut a line by Ctrl X and uh, paste with Ctrl V and save with Ctrl S, S uh, exit with Ctrl Q, and it has a really easy way to switch between default themes. So, so by sensible, you mean word star commands. I'm not sure on, on, on Nano, you have to, if, you, if I want to cut a line, I press Ctrl K and I paste it by Ctrl U, which I'm not sure what the reason, the, the logic behind it is. I know I So you're using 1974 commands to do modern uh copy and paste. I I have a friend who is a very well, he's an nano power user. So I know that I'm not I'm not trying to bash nano. Uh and I do have to say that I've gotten used to these nano key bindings, so I actually will have to get used to going back to the control C and control X control V for micro. But once I, and I, I, I assume I will also have to alias uh, uh, micro to nano because I still just, whenever I want to edit something, I still just use nano because I got used to it. Maybe I should alias nano to, to not open nano, but give back a, a message that says use micro instead to sort and of. I need to revise my comment. It's 1979 commands. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at micro right here and it still has the weird control K to cut a line and I know that control X worked for me, which is no, interesting it, it, because in, in nano you, you exit by a control X. So we have, we have to do a lot of yeah. getting used to, but once I do, I think it will be much, I will, but once I do, I think I will like the experience better. I also did something. And I will talk about this quickly because I did uh, talk about it in the previous episode, but I decided to cut it out because I was, uh, it wasn't a very well structured review. I did something I didn't think I would do. And I went ahead and installed, I installed Gen 2 and, uh, previously we met and we did talk about how, and Bill talked about how he usually just goes to the UR to build uh, and build packages from there. And, uh, what do you say the alternative was that you? Flatpacks. Oh, so, okay, flatpacks. I mean, and... are you talking about the way I consume the AUR? Because the you've got m many... Uh, you eat your AUR? <laughs> well, the, you've got several helpers, what they call them, yeah. that can like go out and get the package build and then just execute that. Script. Yeah, but you still get the, the the more or less the but but you still have to wait for it to build. Yeah. 
Which, I mean, depending on how powerful your system mm-hmm. is and what type of thing you're installing. Because yeah. there are some binaries on there. There's yeah, no, nothing stopping somebody from putting a binary and then you install it. Like, that's how you get Google Chrome on on Arch is it goes and it just gets it gets the deb and it strips out all the all the Debian stuff and then just um, yeah installs it and I, there. I when I use Arch I do use a helper I use Peru and I actually just install Peru dash bin so I I use the pre-compiled binary of Peru yeah at the times I even went uh, to the chaotic AUR to get uh, when I whenever for some reason something just failed to build from the AUR. But building packages on Gentoo is on a whole another level because you basically build all your system from source. And my previous approach to Gentoo was that I shouldn't have to build anything from source in today's day and age. But uh, I found it to be a very interesting learning experience and I didn't expect it, but I liked setting up Gentoo. I managed to install it and uh, the use flags aren't as complicated as I thought. Basically, whenever you build a package, you can have a list of flags system-wide or on package base to include and exclude functionality. For example, if you don't want any Bluetooth functionality to be built into your programs, you just put the flag minus Bluetooth and stuff like that. If you, if I want to have support for PyFire, I just add the flag PyFire. And I set my system up and I compile my kernel with the default settings but my touchpad and touchscreen wouldn't work. So I had to get into the depths of the kernel compile configuration, and I had to find the various switches I had to turn on in order to enable my specific touchscreen and touchpad. And it wasn't that just in the device support enabled a specific model of touchpad and touchscreen. I also had to enable some additional stuff. And I set up Sway, the, the my Wayland window manager, and I felt like doing some math sciencing again, and I wanted to see whether I can compile my system in a way that it has no support for X11, only Wayland. And it is certainly not possible because some packages like uh, Mesa do need to have, uh, are, do have dependencies on X11. But uh, if I wanted to, I could just uh, set the minus X flag for the whole system, compile all the packages that can be built without X11 support to just only work with Wayland. And if I do the same thing with Sway, it won't have X Wayland, so it will not be able to run X11 applications. Is this something that is particularly useful today? Not really. And I never really planned to use this system on a day-to-day basis, but I found it to be an interesting experience. And I also watched a couple of videos about kernel configuration. I was just getting ready to ask you about that. Did you do your own kernel, or did you go with? The I did my kernel? own kernel. Oh. Well, first I first I went with the Gen two kernel, but when I said that I that uh, the touchpad and didn't work, that was already my own compiled kernel. But I I used uh, for some reason when I just downloaded uh, the kernel sources manually and I ran make and make config make install, it wouldn't boot from uh, refined. But then I downloaded the sort of kernel builder helper, which they call GenKernel, and I ran GenKernel with its own uh, default settings. That worked, but then my touchpad and touchscreen didn't work. So I ran GenKernel with the flag that lets me manually turn all, toggle all the switches in the kernel config. And that's where I found the stuff that I... I found it on a German language forum post. So it was 
very well hidden in, in the depths of the internet, but I found the list of uh, options that I had to turn on. And then I went to YouTube and watched a couple of videos about kernel configuration, kernel compilation. The first time I've ever looked, I've ever seen the kernel config screen was when I tried to install Crocs, which is the long running rolling resistor that Arch was inspired by. And I realized that I think doesn't matter what system are you on, if you just want to compile your kernel, it will be the same menu for for setting it up. So I could I found, for example, there are specific options that are for AMD or Intel G CPUs. So you can, for example, uh, lower system overhead by just, if I have a sys, uh, Intel CPU, just exclude anything that has to do with uh, AMD or NVIDIA. With a modern CPU, that's not really doing, I didn't uh, see any particular improvement in performance other than it was booting way faster. I mean, the default gen kernel, kernel was already booting fast, but after I did some of the, I did follow some of the optimization tips from YouTube, uh, I want to shout out the channel Mental Outlaw, which I follow from time to time. He does some uh, videos on Gen 2 and also privacy and security. Uh, I, after I followed his guide, I noticed that the system was even faster to boot, but while I was using the system, I didn't really notice any difference. So this might be useful if someone wants to, for example, install Gen 2 on a very old, for a very old computer. But if you have a very old computer and you, you can install a system that uh, is very lightweight this way, but you also will have a lot of, a lot more waiting while it compiles because of the inherently weaker hardware. That's so, the catch twenty two of it. You, yeah. the, the benefit in order to get the benefit of a really, really uh, narrowed down system that's got nothing more and nothing less than what you absolutely need for that system. It has to be compiled to be tailor fit for that and compilation on an older machine. It's <laughs> you. You almost have to ask yourself where where do you need that optimization the most? You know. Or I guess you could somehow uh, uh, connect it to a more modern machine. It. Yeah, not cross-compile, because as far as I know, when you install Gen 2, you don't start from scratch. You download a tarball and you extract it. And I think that includes the, the compiler. So it's the same compiler for any system. So I'm not sure. I think if you compile a, a package on one machine running Gen 2, you could install that package on another machine. I'm not ex exactly sure. But if that's the case, you, you could have like a server for compiling and like and the deploy that compile package to various machines, which are, is essentially what distributions do when they uh, put the pre-compiled package into repositories. Yeah. But yeah, overall, it, uh, it, uh, it was a much better learning experience than I thought, and I think I've even learned some stuff that is not Gen 2 specific, mainly the kernel settings. You know, the, the kernel has, the default kernel configs have like uh, support for up to like uh, very high number of uh, CPU threads and uh, GPUs, which is, it's not much overhead on, on modern hardware, but it's still interesting how much you can custom tailor your, your kernel for your system. And I I don't, I no longer have Gen 2 in my system because I felt, at one point I felt like, okay, I'm 
I sh I'm I I found myself looking for updates again, and on Gento, you know, updates are. You have to, at one point I even compiled Firefox and LibreOffice, which are the two of the biggest packages, and it was literally like, okay, let me start the installation, and I go to sleep, and when I wake up, LibreOffice is there. So I no longer have Gento on my system, but I didn't uh, wipe it. I took a snapshot as an, an, an as an IMG file of the partition, and I still have it stored. So if I ever feel like going back to Gento, I I can go back to the same system. I do have to say that while Gen 2 can be very light on system resources like RAM and CPU, it you have, need to have quite some space because you download, there's a lot of temporary files. Like you, you have to, in order to be able to compile your kernel, you have to download the kernel sources. If you want to, to have the kernel sources for multiple versions of the kernel, that's as many times the storage. And uh, there are other temporary files that you have to store. So I ended up storing that on my data partition and on the root partition for Gen 2. And when I moved all those temporary files to the from from the root partition, my system was around I think six or seven gigabytes, which is not bad. I think it's about on par with an Arch system of the same uh, configuration. So I I do not, I do see that Gen 2 has enormous potential, but it's while I did enjoy using it for maybe two or three weeks, it's not for me as a daily driver. But I do appreciate it a lot more than before I tried it. It it's mostly a learning experience, yeah. yeah. And you don't well, get System D by by default with that either. You're kind of a yeah. Okay, you get citizen. You get OpenRC and uh, yeah. They have, uh, you can choose to use either that or systemd, but I just went with OpenRC because that's what the default is. And I even learned that the OpenRC is uh, developed by the Gen 2 team, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So All this talk about Gen 2 got me thinking about Sabayon again, which is no longer active, but has been rolled into Mochaccino OS. And I did a check on that, and they are currently in beta 5. So they're getting close to ready to release. I often thought that was an interesting because that that was around probably a decade ago, or better. And I loved Savion. Yeah. It took longer to update than anything else, but that's because it was uh, it had to go get the binaries that had already been recompiled. But you, you didn't have to do any compiling, but it still took longer to install a binary than it did other uh, packages. That was probably a lot of work to keep that distribution going hmm. that wasn't just a that wasn't yeah just but a, they have so many cute features in it yeah <laughs> it was it was a unique one i don't i don't, i can't think of much of anything out there that's based on gen 2 in the way that was where it it was it wasn't just a gen 2 clone it had a gen 2 back end but they had a lot of their own tooling involved are there a lot of uh, other Gen 2 dis based distros that have uh, all binary packages? See, Sabion was the only one that I thought did that at all. What honestly. is the... Uh, well, the latest version is Mochaccino OS, and like I said, it's in beta 5. Okay. What is the yeah, benefit did. of having a Gen 2 based distro that is using binary packages? You can install Gen 2 without having to co compile everything. Yes, but what well, is the, but the strength of Gen 2 is that you can tweak how you compile things. You can still tweak it. You still have the control over... Because the thing with Gen 2, 
other distributions, you try to strip system D out of it and go with something else. You get, you get kind of a half baked experience, you know, with gen two, you have a level of control that's even more granular than what you would get on arch where you, you can literally strip out anything. Um, yes, but stripping out system D, the results may vary. Uh, I, this is this is the reason that I I'm not, I don't really like distributions that are based on a systemd distribution, but they are they are a derivative that don't doesn't use systemd like dev one for Debian and Artix for Arch. I really like Void for the reason that they it's an independent distro that doesn't use systemd by de, by design. So if someone really wants to use a distro that doesn't use systemd, they maybe they should uh, go with something like Void or Gen2. I know that there are, there there's a distro that uh, is based on Debian, but doesn't use systemd, which is MX Linux, that I think does this approach very well. So if I wanted to use a distro that is not Void or Gen2 and not have systemd, I would probably go to MX Linux, but the init system is not really a factor that I, that, uh, uh, influences my decisions i think you run into a lot of difficulties too if you try to live without it because so many things all your modern projects are leaning almost completely against it you would you would have to be if you're going to live without system d you'd have to know how to write these scripts yourself you know because not everything is going to have an open rc uh service service going on or or whatever Whatever I, is out there, I know Mo- Mochaccino has de- has developed their own program uh, manager that they call Luit, and uh, they're currently available in GNOME, KDE, and Mate. GNOME is one of the projects that people said some people don't like because it uh, has a hard dependency or system. Did they say? But then GNOME is in the in the void repos, and I've tried it and I've used it without a problem, without systemly. So it can be made to work. And I think Gentoo even has a specific uh, repo or a specific config for GNOME that, to make it work without systemly. But it's, uh, it, you just have to write the the service files yourself, yeah. or the distribution has to. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's no technical reason why GNOME can't work with other init systems. It just, it's just not. Gonna, mm-hmm. They're not going to write those service files for you. You got to do it yourself. Yeah, and on my desktop, I went from bunch of systemd distros to using Void for a couple of months, and then I went to Arch and Fedora. So I went from a non-systemd distro back to systemd, but that. The fact that they do or do not have systemd has nothing to do with my decisions. I just went with Fedora because I wanted stability on my desktop, and I'm still running Void on my laptop because I, I, I just like to tinker with it. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think a lot of people who don't like systemd, they, some people say that it's it's it does too much, but the fact that it's not monolithic means that you can just install the pieces if it that you want and exclude the pieces that you don't want to have. Some people I sounds like we need to do an innards on this Ooh. topic. Well. System D, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Or or whatever. We've been talking about a few things that were way beyond innards, but they were are way way beyond um <coughs> bi weekly wanderings, but they'd be make good innards. Yeah. Um but no, I just used System D as an example of something that would be a benefit of a anything based on Gen two. You just you just have that level of control over the system, and it just 
it feeds into the tribal nature of Linux as a whole. You know, you've got people that want to use something Gen 2 based just because, you know. And Which so sort of leads me to the other thing that I think I've, that some people, some of the system, D, that some people who don't like system D just, they not might not necessarily have a problem with system D itself, but they might not like the fact that uh, it's so widespread, which means less choice. But you do have a lot of distros that not use that doesn't use, don't use system D. But that still doesn't mean that the. But there's still the fact that the more and more distros rely on system D, the more and more you see pe- uh, projects that uh, might have hard dependencies on it. Yeah, which might or might not have well, any. Well, in twenty years, Leonard Pottering will be seen as a visionary. Uh, right now, he's seen as a pain in somebody's tail end. I think if you don't give people something to complain about, they'll make something up. That's the bottom line with that. Ready to move on? Yep. Uh Oh, you broke it. Somebody is always going to have some kind of complaint about anything you do. Oh, yeah. Especially if you make something like Systemd that's got its fingers, its tentacles into so many different parts of the system. You know, people are not going to be comfortable with that because reasons well the whole thing is is all a question of purity that it doesn't fit the linux concept they're oh, trying to the unix philosophy enough no. of that nonsense already you know? yeah yeah <laughs> in linux as in politics purity is a downside well so anyhow, and, let, and let, let's talk about too. our innards yeah. somewhere shall we just uh, that system they might not fit the unix philosophy but linux is not sorry System, system they might not fit the Unix philosophy, but Linux is not Unix, so it doesn't necessarily have to, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, and on to our housekeeping and ma- and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Our next episode is at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, July 24th, 2022. And there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Um, Our next live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, July 16th, 2022. And you can also get that converted to your time zone or join us on Discord and be a part of that live stream um, for only 391.5. Our next live stream will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, July 30th, 2022. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. On to the wrap-up. Um, if you like the sound of my voice, you can catch me on a couple of my other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can get to at tlts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which is at linuxlugcast.com. You can email me directly, jb at mintcast.org. I do try to answer every single email. And I do have a Kofi link in the show notes if uh, you want to donate to me. Moss, how about you? Well, you can hear me on my other podcasts, Full Circle Weekly News, every week, Distro Hopper's Digest every month, 
My email is bardmoss at pm.me and all my other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Uh, you can email me, bill at mincast.org. I'm bill underscore H on Discord. I'm at WCHauser3 on Twitter and WCHauser3 on Facebook. Also, check out my podcast, Three Fat Truckers. Uh, the website for that is 3ftpodcast.org. We uh, Basically, that show comes out opposite of uh, this show, so every fortnight. Uh, Norbert? You can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org. And Nishant couldn't be here with us today, but you can send him an email at nishant at mincast.org. He's Recon Ghost on Instagram, Recon Ghost at GitHub, Ghost.Recon on Discord, and Maverick00783 on Steam. Okay, and before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Mintcast possible. Our team of audio editors, including Norbert Londoner, Tony Hughes, and others, we continue to need volunteers for our audio editing. Please contact us. Bill Hauser and Josh Lowe for their work on the website, and Bill Hauser for hosting the Linode, which runs our website. Hobstar for our logo, and NitRD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time sinks. Archive.org for hosting our audio files and the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.